John chapter 9 and 10. We're doing both of those tonight. John 9 and 10. We're looking at the theme, live eternally. That's present tense. So I'm going to read our introduction, which is copied in the bulletin, so that we get the idea of what live eternally means and looks like. So John writes his gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's from the end of the gospel. Now, this word life in Greek is zoe, Z-O-E. It differs from bios life or biological life. Zoe life is God's life. It is the kind of life that lives forever. It never decays. Though originally assumed to be something attainable only in heaven, John dares us to find that life in Jesus today. This is the life God wants us to live right now. A piece of himself within us. A bit of heaven on earth before Jesus returns to the earth. Eternal life is not merely life after death, but also life before death. And so Jesus came to teach. In John's gospel, we have him opening up. In the beginning was the word. And that is echoing Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see seven days in which God makes a universe and he puts life on it. Well, Jesus comes in the beginning. He's the word. This is the new beginning to John. The New Testament with Jesus is the new creation. Because the old creation has gone old. It's been that. It's dying. It's rotting. It's biological existence. But Jesus comes as the new creation to make uh, all things new, to give the world Zoe life, life that's going to keep on going, God's own life. And so John, in mimicking the seven days of creation, has Jesus perform seven miracles, which he calls signs. And each of these signs are clearly demonstrations of of his creative power over God's world. Then he also has seven I am statements where he says, I am using the name Yahweh, God's personal name, the I am that I am, which he said to Moses at the bush, I am, and then he fills that in with a metaphor. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. So John is showing us that Jesus is bringing a new creation. Now, in John chapters 9 and 10, we're going to see the sixth miracle sign. He's going to make a man who was born blind see. Now, healing a blind person is enough of a creative miracle. But making a man who never ever had sight to begin with is nothing other than creating something out of nothing, which God did with the universe. So this miracle Jesus does is one of his best. And in fact, all of his seven are going to grow in intensity as you go through the book. It's going to climax with his raising someone from the dead. Four days dead, which is when the body starts to decay. So John is showing Jesus truly in authority over the creation. We're also going to see in chapter 10 his uh, next two I am statements, numbers three and four. So we've heard him say, I'm the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Tonight, we're going to hear him say, I am the door and I am the good shepherd. So the I am's are going to catch up a little bit with the signs. We're on six with signs and we're only on number four with the I am's. 
And then last piece of introduction is the idea of this section of John from chapters 5 to 10. He's trying to get us to see that the Jewish festivals and holidays and feasts are finding their answer. The, the things that these feasts promised and the hope that they looked forward to are happening in Jesus. So he's replacing these feasts. Or maybe better put, these feasts and what they celebrate are relocating from their rituals to the person of Jesus. So in chapter 5, the Sabbath that the Jews kept, Jesus says, I'm the Sabbath. It's not just a silly rule the religious leaders want you to keep. Can't do that. Can't do that on the Sabbath. I'm giving eternal rest to those who will come to me. And then he makes a man who's never walked, or at least for 38 years hasn't walked, he makes him walk to show, this is what my Sabbath looks like. Who do you want to follow now? Then in chapter 6, we see it's the Passover. And during the Passover, uh, of course, that's when the Jews celebrated their liberation from from Egypt in the Exodus, going to the Promised Land. God parts the Red Sea, feeds them with manna on their way. Uh, On that celebration, Jesus feeds a crowd of 5,000 with two loaves, or, or five loaves and two fish. And he multiplies that and feeds them, like Moses bringing manna to them. And then after that, he walks on the water, right as the disciples are freaking out in a storm, as if he's to say, Moses parted the Red Sea, I just walk over it. And so we see these themes from the Exodus happening. And then he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna, you can come to me and never hunger again. In chapters 7 and 8, the, feasts were cel- the Jews are celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, or booths. And that's basically a week-long camping trip, where you go to Jerusalem, you camp out to reenact the wilderness journey to the promised land that the Israelites did. And there, as you're looking at the stars, and you have your s'mores of the campfire, and you're telling stories uh, about your ancestors in the wilderness, um, you would, you would recall God's faithfulness to provide for them on the way. So what does Jesus say at this very feast? Well, he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me, and I shall give him torrents of living water. Remember how Moses gave Israel water from the rock? Well, Jesus says, now it's in me, a person. And then he says, I am the light of the world. As Israel followed the pillar of fire to guide them through the wilderness, Jesus, and they, by the way, in the temple, they would light these enormous torches to uh, symbolize that pillar of fire. Uh, While that's all going on, Jesus says, hey, I'm the light of the world. You can either follow these candles or you can follow me. (laughs) Whoever follows me will not stumble in the darkness, but he will find the light of life. And now tonight, in chapter 10, you're going to notice in verse 22... It says, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. So the Feast of Dedication is uh, also known as Hanukkah. Now, though the origins of Hanukkah are not in the scriptures, the Jews did celebrate Hanukkah at the time of Jesus. So you can't necessarily go to a scripture and say, oh, that's what it's about, but we know from history what it was about. And Hanukkah was the time when uh, the Jews were celebrating the, the great heroics of Judas Maccabee, who was this uh, crazy zealot. And he led Israel. They were being oppressed by one of the Greek kingdoms, brutally oppressed, persecuted. And he and a ragtag group of guerrilla warfare guys and thugs, they rise up and have a miraculous victory over their oppressors and cast them out and establish a 100-year kingdom where Israel's actually independent. Then... 
um, the Romans come and end that, and then we have the birth of Jesus, and we're kind of in present time of our text. But uh, Judas, when he conquered the Greeks, he rode up to Jerusalem on a donkey, two shouts of Hosanna, (laughs) and palm branches, and then he goes into the temple and he cleanses it. He cleanses it from all of the pagan stuff that the Greeks brought into it. And so for the Jews, Hanukkah was this time of remembering that God has even recently briefly delivered us from our oppressors, and he cleansed the temple. So they're remembering that celebration. But you know what Jesus says to that celebration? And we're going to read it in just a minute. He says, I am the true shepherd. In other words, in Hanukkah, you guys celebrate your, your violent leaders who beat up your enemies and brought you temporary deliverance? Well... I'm a better shepherd than Judas Maccabee. I'm the true shepherd. And I'm not going to use you guys and kill you in war to get my kingdom started. I'm going to give up my life for you so that the kingdom can be started. And this kingdom will have no end. So Jesus is the fulfillment of Hanukkah as well. Okay, now with all that introduction, let's read chapters 9 and 10. We're going to read through the flow. I've been liking doing that. I don't know if you do. You can give me feedback later. But uh, I've been liking the flow. So I will only briefly make comments where necessary, and then I will cap it with comment, uh, some commentary. So John chapter 9, verse 1. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, "Uh, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So the man born blind went and washed and came back seeing. Well, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, wait a minute, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, it is he. Others said, no, but it is kind of like him. Well, the man born blind kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes. I like how he leaves out the spit part and said to me, go to to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. So they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Dun, 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 dun. So, 
of course, the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. Simple as that. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. They thought this whole thing was staged until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Huh? Tell us. His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Now, John lets us know his parents said these things because they feared the Jews For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So, interrogation round number two. For the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. The man born blind answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have already told you, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Yeah, yeah. And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that, th- that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man born blind answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. Hello, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? How dare you take that tone with us? And they cast him out. But Jesus heard that they cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now the New King James reads the Son of God. And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, 
For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Now some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, What? Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, maybe with a little smirk, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. If you're the shepherd, you don't have to sneak in. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus said again to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have Zoe life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. Now, real quick note. You might have noticed some of the similarities between this and Ezekiel 34, which you read before worship. Um, Ezekiel 34, by the way, was part of the reading scriptures that the Jews read from during Hanukkah. Might be worth your time to go back and read over that and compare it to John 10. Okay, again, verse 19. Now, after he said all this, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon. He's insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? 
at that time, the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah, took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple, in the colonnade of Solomon. It's a little roofed area where a lot of rabbis would teach from. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal Zoe, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Don't miss this, okay? My hand. Verse 29. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. See that? You can't snatch them out of my hand. can't snatch them out of the Father's hand. So in conclusion, verse 30, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, oh, Hold on, hold on. I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. And Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, Psalm 82, I said, you are gods. Hmm? If he, the psalmist, called them gods to whom the word of God came, and by the way, scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Pretty hard to grab a guy when he got a bunch of people into him and listening to him. 40. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. Many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. So we have a very, very, very great narrative in chapter 9. Great story. Just such masterfully told, just the, the irony of how blind the Pharisees are, and yet the blind man sees better than them, right? And uh, then we have this long talk of, with Jesus about who he is and who these Pharisees are. They're not really good shepherds. They're bad shepherds. You know, he's talking about the thief and the robber the whole time, but you can't help but think that he's talking about the religious leaders around him. He's comparing himself to them and saying, look, these aren't good leaders. These aren't good shepherds. They're like the Ezekiel 34 shepherds just trying to rip the people off, pluck the weak ones, let the lost ones go, take their wool and eat them. Uh, Jesus is making very clear contrasts. I'm not like that at all. In fact, I'm going to give up my life for the sheep. 
So it's very interesting, very, very powerful two chapters we have here. The disciples asked Jesus, first of all, notice in chapter 9, verse 1, that Jesus sees the man blind from birth, when even his parents don't seem to see him, right? You notice the parents are in the story, but the neighbors said in verse 8 that he was a beggar. So thanks for the help, mom and dad. I'm born blind, so you basically just discount me as your son. So Jesus sees this man whom even his parents wouldn't care to notice. He always had eyes just magnetized towards weakness and towards hurt. And the disciples notice him too, maybe because they, what's Jesus looking at? Oh, oh, here's a theological question. Teacher, who sinned? Now, the Jews did believe you can sin in the womb. So when they say, did this man sin that he may be born blind? Uh, there was this idea that they had, like, because Jacob and Esau wrestled in Rachel's womb, right? So they saw that you could become a sinner even before you were born. And so they're thinking, well, clearly, he either sinned before he's born or his parents sinned in such a way that it brought this illness to him. So they want to know whose fault is it for the condition he's in. Now, on one hand, it's a great and interesting theological debate, although it totally misses everything, because we know that God doesn't punish us in that way. Like, oh, I'm going to make you not have a leg because I'm just angry at what your mom and dad did, or I'm angry at what you did before you're born. God doesn't go around paying us back for our wrongs. He doesn't do that. Wrongs happen, and that's just a fact of reality. In fact, if anything, Jesus clears it up here, and he says, look, bad things happen so that God can be at work in them, that the people of God can come to the aid of him. And so he says that this man was born blind so that my works might be displayed in him. However, amen. However, I can't help but wonder if asking the question, all right, whose fault is it for his condition, isn't a way of absolving responsibility for loving their neighbor as themselves. And don't we do that? Don't we see someone in a really rough spot in life and we qu- we're quick to say, well, if they wouldn't drink alcohol, it's their fault, really. And so we're quick to ask, who sinned? And, and we're quick to say, it's their fault that they're in this condition or what, whatever it is, their drug use or, or I told them not to marry her. You know, like, and so we see misery and we're quick to say, well, whose fault is it now, huh? And that's our way of basically saying, I, look, I did my part. I tried to warn you, but you're not listening. And Jesus wants none of that. He says, look, it doesn't matter whose fault it is. What matters is that they're hurting. Amen. And they're hurting so that God can come and act. And so Jesus shows them how to go about this. Stop worrying about why they're like that and help show them, open their eyes to the love of God. The grace of Jesus is demonstrated here too. You'll notice that he never asks the man if he wants to be healed. In fact, you can imagine being the blind man. You can't see anything. And you hear this conversation, right? You're like, here I am again, the the subject of everyone's talk. Uh, And then you hear Jesus defending you. Then the next thing you hear is spitting. I don't know how graphically that was done, but he spits. And then you feel moist dirt on your eyes. 
Jesus never asks him, can I put my spit on your eyes? Can I heal you? He doesn't. He just does it. And that's often what grace does is it finds us when we weren't looking for it. But also, he doesn't ask him, hey, do you believe I can heal you? He says, I'm going to show you that I can. So we see the grace of God on display there. It's nothing to be achieved, and sometimes we never ask for it. Now, also, uh, on verse verse 6, it says, When he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, the word eyes is used nine times in this chapter, and each time... The personal pronoun, like his eyes, the man's eyes, that pronoun uh, comes before the word eyes. So in the Greek, it would say his eyes. But usually in the Greek, you would write eyes, his. You would put the pronoun after. John reverses the order here. And so if you're reading in Greek, it actually stands out a little differently. And it stands out as if, this is totally a guess, as if John is trying to say, reader, he anointed his eyes with mud. What about yours? Almost like there's this invitation to be the blind man ourselves in this narrative. One quote I want to share uh, from, I, I've, I've mentioned to you him a few times for you guys, Frederick Bruner's just an amazing commentary on John. Uh, he writes this, some, not all, in fact, this is in your bulletin too, some, not all, bad things, like, for example, this man's heartbreaking birth of blindness, apparently happen not from bad causes in the past, but for good purposes in the future. Did you hear that? Some bad things happen not from bad causes in the past, but for good purposes in the future. All of us know from life experience that failure is often good preparation, or our failure can form our future if we let it. And then the irony here is that this man's eyes are open, And the more he begins to see about Jesus himself, the more the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the ones who are supposed to be the eyes for people, the less they see and the more narrow-minded and the harder they get in heart. So there's an interesting progression there. And so by the end of chapter 9, we see the Pharisees are blind to the new creation Jesus is doing. They're blind to the new creation, but they're very keen on seeing the Sabbath breaker. Get the Sabbath breaker. Just interesting, (laughs) a sad way that that ends for the religious leaders. So then in chapter 10, like I said, Ezekiel 34 is a big text behind chapter 10. No doubt this is on Jesus's mind. He even talks about, you know, the robbers coming and scattering the sheep and not caring about them, just like the Israel, like the leaders of Israel back in the day. Um, uh, Jesus announcing, I'm the true shepherd. And as Ezekiel 34 said, God said in that passage, I will come shepherd them. I will take care of them. I will heal them. I will find them. I will save them. Jesus comes and he's that shepherd. That's what he's announcing. I am God visiting you in flesh and blood. And so I want to be a good shepherd if you will follow me. Now he talks about this interesting part, how the sheep follow me because they know my voice. What would often happen then is at nighttime, all of the flocks in that particular region would come in one place. So the shepherds would together form a barrier to protect their sheep. In the morning, when it was time to send your flocks out in the fields, uh, the sheep were all kind of jumbled. And rather than like looking at all of them and saying, uh, I remember I had a gray speckled one, or that one has my branding iron on it, or rather than taking the time to do that, all the shepherds would do is they would go in their certain direction and they would call out their sheep 
And the sheep would go to the appropriate shepherd because they learned his voice. And so this is what Jesus is alluding to is, I'm that shepherd, and if you're my sheep, you'll know it because you'll know my voice. You'll be following my voice when I call. You'll be coming to me and not to someone else. Um, So he's the door. We go into the new creation, the Zoe life of God through Jesus. And he's the good shepherd who's going to make sure we get to the green pasture. And I really think that 10 verse 10 is a perfect way to explain what Zoe life and bios life, the differences are about. 10.10 says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But here's Zoe life. I came that they may have Zoe and have it abundantly. Remember that in John's use of the word eternal life, Zoe, it doesn't just mean uh, longevity of life. It means quality and depth of life as well. So it's something that can be had now. Now the big question. We come to verse 31, in chapter 10, verse 31 where the Jews want to stone Jesus for blasphemy, because he said, I and the Father are one. So they got what he was saying indeed. But Jesus answers them in verse 34, and this is really interesting, right? It is, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? So it really stumbles, it really stumbles the reader at first. You're like, what in the world? So Jesus is quoting from Psalm 82, verse 6. And really, the whole Psalm 82 talks about these gods. Now, the word God in Hebrew, as the Psalms are written, is Elohim, which we often translate God, but it's also translated and also used to mean a judge or a ruler or a king. So in Psalm 82, God is putting the rulers, the judges of Israel, on trial, and he's accusing them of being bad leaders, of perverting justice and distorting truth. And he calls them out and says, you guys ought to know better. And so Jesus is simply picking up the psalm and saying, wait a minute, I said I'm God, but your own scripture calls other leaders of Israel gods. So what fault did I make? That's what he wants to know. So there's four layers to his point here. First, he points out their inconsistency. The law permitted corrupt human judges to be called gods. Corrupt human judges to be called God but they won't let him say he's God. That's inconsistent. Second layer, if scripture cannot be broken, like he said, and it has called humans God, to whom God's word came, right? The judges have God's word to do their judging. If they can be called gods, then there's nothing blasphemous in Jesus referring to himself as God. You can't, if you say I can't and they can, that's breaking scripture. Third layer, A union between divinity and humanity was already assumed in the Old Testament. That's what Jesus is showing. You guys understood in the Old Testament that prophets, kings, priests, and judges could be called the Son of God. David himself was called the Son of God. That you saw this sort of re, this sort of connection that humans and, and God can work together in the world. You recognize that then. Why won't you recognize that now? That, that could be happening in me. And then fourth, fourth layer, if those to whom God's word came were called gods, what does that make Jesus, who is the embodiment of the word of God? If these people are gods because they have the word of God to speak, then what does it mean when you are the word made flesh? Jesus has got them. 
and he got out of their way. So we're now going to go to a worship song. And um, what we've been doing is I'll teach through the verses of our chapters. We're going to have a worship song. Then I'll come back for roughly 15 minutes and we will look at a certain section more in detail from this reading. And we're going to look at the blind man and we're going to look at that story more in detail, uh, talking about his belief and his belonging with Jesus. So this is a good time to just let God's word soak into our hearts during this song. Maybe you have not been following the good shepherd and maybe you don't know his voice. Father, I ask that tonight during this song, they would hear your voice for the first time. Or if our ears have been flooded and cluttered with other voices, may your voice become clear tonight. We invite you to be our shepherd. Lead us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. 